Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Today, we look at two extremes of vexing garden problems around the world. The tiny, tiny nematodes that attach to plant roots, sucking the life out of them. And one you don't need a microscope to see, deer. They both love your garden. At least with nematodes, there are a few resistant plants. But when it comes to deer-resistant plants, well, good luck. It depends how hungry those deer are. So how do you control root-knot nematodes? And how do you control marauding deer? America's favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower, is here, and we have tips. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Let's go. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics Podcast. There's a lot of ways you can get your question in. You can phone us. We have a phone number, 916-292-8964, 916-292-8964. Or if you don't want to use a phone, use your computer. Go to speakpipe.com slash gardenbasics, and you can talk into the microphone on your computer and leave us a question there. Speakpipe.com slash Garden Basics. And, of course, email to fred at farmerfred.com works as well. Debbie Flower is here to help us answer these uh, vexing garden questions here on the Garden Basics podcast. And, Debbie, uh, today we're going to pay a visit to the North Valley. North Valley of where? Yes, the North Valley, I believe. I'm hoping it's California. Okay. In which case, it would be everything north of Yuba City, apparently, where chickens are a protected species. Oh, my. No, I I won't get into that. I'm going to try to contain myself on that one. All right. So here's the question that uh, was left to us on SpeakPipe. Good morning from Zone 9 in the North Valley. I work in a nonprofit garden where we have raised beds and containers. Our raised beds and containers we discovered were inundated with root knot nematode issues. In our raised beds, as a result, we have grown and chopped in French marigolds. In some of them, we are currently growing a mustard crop, which we will chop into the beds. However, this leaves the containers of soil. I am inclined to throw it out, but I am being encouraged to reuse it in some way possible. I am also suspicious of the compost pile, as much of our soil in our containers were used from the compost pile, and I can't figure out where else these would come from. Can you tell me what I can do to mitigate this issue What do I need to do moving forward? Thank you. Thank you for your question. We appreciate it. Nematodes, Debbie, are are difficult to get rid of. They are very difficult to get rid of. Nematodes are microscopic round worms and there are people who tell you will tell you they are not worms but that's how they're described as microscopic round worms and there are beneficial nematodes and then there are the bad guys and the root knot nematode not spelled with a k is one of the bad ones it's called the root knot nematode because it the symptoms of the infestation is knots on the roots mm-hmm. of the of the plant 
Now, there are plants that do what we call fixed nitrogen, like clover. If you pull them out, you will see very uniform uh, swellings on the roots. That is not nematodes. If you pull out a plant that has a nematode problem, the swellings on the roots can be very large, up to an inch. They'll be irregular in size and shape, and the plant will have uh, shown stress, especially during hot or, or trying weather times. The caller mentioned uh, several of the techniques that they have tried, which have included um, using French marigolds, mm-hmm. and you might have success. The mustard I was I was interested in. I, I consider mustard a cool season crop, and I guess when soil temperatures drop below a certain point, nematodes become less active and therefore cause less damage. Right, but they're still there. Right, and the trick if you want to call it a trick, to using the French marigolds, and it must be the French marigolds. Some marigolds actually are very attractive to nematodes, but using the French marigolds or the mustard is that you have to plant a monoculture, meaning the bed is full of only French marigolds or or mustard or a mix of the two. Technique will not be successful if you have a tomato plant and then a, a marigold next to it. It will not be helpful. So you need to plant this uh, monoculture of these nematode-resistant plants. According to the University of California, the marigolds that are most effective are French marigolds of names such as Nemagold, Petite Blanc, Queen Sophia, which I've grown and it's very pretty, uh, marigold, and tangerine. And you want to avoid the signet marigolds because the nematodes will feed and reproduce uh, on those. Nematode control, though, like you point out, if you're going to try marigolds, it has to be a monoculture. It has to be a monoculture. And you, as she talked about, you dig in the plant debris once the plants have, have declined. So you're taking that soil out of production for a year. You are. Wouldn't it be easier to use soil solarization? I think soil solarization is the best choice for controlling the root knot nematode. And it will get rid of them. It will kill them, but only in the top 12 inches of the soil. She didn't talk about how deep the containers were, how big the containers were. If that soil can be solarized correctly, which is putting clear plastic over the media, which has been moistened and there's nothing growing in it for six to eight weeks or or until the plastic breaks down, which typically occurs first. And that will heat up that soil to a temperature that kills the nematodes but only in the top 12 inches of soil. So if there were a parking lot or a patio or somewhere where you could spread the soil out in a a one-foot depth and then put down the plastic, all the edges of the plastic have to be held down. You can't put a rock every foot or something. The whole edge has to be held down so that the heat that forms from the sun heating up that soil stays trapped under the plastic. But that would it would take the soil out of production for... A hot season. This is definitely done during the hot season of the year, but it would sterilize that soil. I noticed that the University of California says one of the big drawbacks to solarization as far as controlling root knot nematodes says it won't provide long-term protection for fruit trees, vines, and woody ornamental plants. But if this is a community garden or you are growing basically annuals. Right, edibles probably is my guess. I like the idea of of spreading out that soil and then moistening it and tarping it and letting it sit for six weeks. Right, I I agree. If you 
spend a lot of time on the internet looking for other solutions. People will propose them, but over and over and over again, they say these don't really work. There is a chemical on the market called nematode control, and it is um, uh, an extract from a tree that is grown in South America. But that extract only repels and deters the nematodes. It doesn't kill any existing nematodes. Other techniques uh, like fallowing the soil for a season will definitely reduce the population. But as soon as you put a susceptible plant, and boy, root knot nematodes have so many host plants, so many plants are susceptible to them. It's very difficult to find a plant that is not susceptible to root knot nematodes. Uh, so as soon as you put a susceptible host in there, the population will expand again. Some of the ways that nematodes can spread through your garden might be your own fault by moving tools, for instance, that might have some soil from an infected bed, and you move that tool to work in another bed. That can spread it. Uh, You want to avoid moving plants and soil from infested parts of the garden. Also, don't allow irrigation water from around infested plants to run off, as that also spreads nematodes. That kind of flies in the face of one piece of advice they do offer, which says that nematodes are less active in well-moistened soil. So, yeah, you could water it more, but if there's runoff, you're going to be spreading those nematodes. It doesn't kill the nematodes. It just makes them less active. Right. Or it dilutes them. Now, there is some resistance. There are tomatoes with nematode resistant. Their their common name would be followed by an N, maybe among other letters. There is rootstock for several types of fruit trees, including apples, almonds, apricots, walnuts, that are resistant. Resistance does not mean that the plant will not be attacked by the root knot nematode. It just means that it the root knot nematode has to work a little harder to cause a problem in that plant. Of course, the advice is always to keep the plant healthy, as healthy as possible, and that will keep it growing. Because the nematodes are in the roots, they're causing problems with water uptake and nutrient uptake. So keeping them well watered and fertilized appropriately will help them grow better. Also, the benefit of growing a tomato, for example, that has that nematode resistance built into it, if you grow that for a year, that will cause the nematode population to decline to possibly allow you on the following year to grow perhaps a susceptible variety of a tomato to nematodes. Another thing that sort of flies in the face of uh, what's popular in gardening and farming now, and that's basically to uh, leave the roots in the ground Mm -hmm. and let them basically degenerate during the winter. Uh, well, actually, the nematodes could live there and feed off those old roots. So, they are living in the roots, yeah. yes. So you do want to not leave the roots of the plants of last year's garden in the soil. You'll want to pull them out if you have that nematode problem. Right. One way they suggested to see if you have a nematode problem is to germinate some melon seeds in soil that you think... Uh, is infested. infested. That would work in that compost pile she's talking about. Yeah. Melons often volunteer in compost piles from seeds that have been thrown in there uh, while cleaning out fruit in the kitchen. And you'd have the warmer temperatures, too, that's necessary for quick germination, 80 degrees or so. And after three weeks, that melon seed will develop roots that if you have nematodes, you'll see the root knots. So that's one way you could uh, maybe test that compost pile. And it could be done... In a controlled way, in a container, in a warm place, Mm. 
as long as, you know, you wash your hands and wash your shoes and make sure you're not moving that suspected infested compost pile around. How do you destroy root knot nematodes by moving a tool from one bed to the other? When you're moving a tool from one bed to another, how do you make sure that you've cleaned off any root knot nematodes that might be on there? That's a good question because they're microscopic. But I would wash the tool over the bed that I used it in Mm -hmm. so that anything that came off of it would go into that same bed and wash it thoroughly, probably with a brush. All right. So you wouldn't be carrying a bucket of ammonia around with you or vinegar? Or... I, I wouldn't. I don't know if those things work. Oh. <laughs> to, to, for, on root knot nematodes. You'd yeah. think they would. Drying them, dryness uh, causes them to, mm-hmm. to die. So if you had enough tools where you could use one, wash it, put it somewhere till it's 100% dry, then there would be no live nematodes on it. However, as as UC pointed out, by moistening your soil more can help their activity decline. You don't reduce the populations. So basically, <laughs> they succeed either way. Yes, they're very tenacious. <laughs> all right. So with root knot nematodes, I think I like that idea of taking all that container soil and spreading it out and covering it with clear plastic, not black plastic, right. but clear plastic, moisten it first, secure the edges around and uh, make it tight against the soil and leave it there for six weeks in the hottest part of this year yeah right in full sun right this is a a, soil solarization works best in hot summer climates in cool season climates if you're in the bay area or other areas where you seldom see temperatures over 85 or 90 degrees it uh, either will take longer or later in the year to do it. You might try it in September when there's more clear skies. Right. What you're looking for is sun. Yeah. So those clear skies are critical. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really good luck. All right. Root knot nematodes. There you go. We'll have a link in today's show notes with more information about identifying and controlling the root knot nematode. Thank you, Debbie. You're welcome, Fred. told you about SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planters. They're sold worldwide. SmartPots are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. They're BPA-free and lead-free, making them safe for growing vegetables and other edibles. Well, the folks at SmartPots have added a new product to their lineup, perfect for building the healthiest soil imaginable for your garden by composting. It's the Smart Pot Compost Sack, a large 100-gallon fabric bag that's lightweight yet extremely durable and lasts for years. It can hold 12 cubic feet of pure compost. This rugged fabric is entirely porous, containing many micropores that allow for air circulation and drainage. It's easy to start a compost pile with the Smart Pot Compost Sack. Just open the sack, Set it on level ground and start adding your compostable materials, grass clippings, vegetable peelings, coffee grounds, and more, as well as fallen leaves, straw, and shredded paper. Next, place the optional cover over the sack. That's all there is to it. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. You can find the location nearest you at their website, and you can buy it online from Smart Pots. 
Just visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your SmartPot order by using the coupon code FRED, F-R-E-D. Do it at checkout from the SmartPot store. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of SmartPot's lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers and their new compost sack. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount. It's SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. No matter where you go in the United States, you are going to find deer. They're visible, they're widespread, and they love to munch on your garden. They're a very popular game animal, but they're not so fun when uh, they're in your backyard eating your garden, your plants, your annuals, your perennials, your fruit trees, and everything else. And it seems like deer populations are increasing in more populated areas, especially those on the outskirts of town, those that border riparian areas. And they seem to be getting more and more bold going into denser population areas because, let's face it, we're not coyotes. They're not that afraid of us. Dear, how do you protect your plants? Debbie Flower is with us, college professor, retired, of horticulture. And I would think that in your time as a college professor, especially at ones in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, this question came up a lot. Yeah, it sure did. There are a lot of vineyards in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And for them, it's a big, big problem because uh, deer deer feed on relatively new growth uh, and they can do a lot of damage, especially if you get a mom who decides your vineyard is a good place to have her babies. Then the Ooh. babies, yeah, that's their new home and they'll come back and come back and come back. So it's definitely a big problem up there. I think a lot of people have finally realized that you have to take all these uh, deer-proof plant lists with a grain of salt because, uh, like we say, all gardening is local. Well, all deer are local, and they may have different taste buds wherever they may happen to be in the country. And if they're starving, they'll eat anything, as a, a human would do. If you're yeah. starving, and you'll eat anything to quell your stomach. So that's very true. There is nothing that is truly deer-proof. Uh, but there are some strategies we can do to protect the plants that that deer love a lot and that we love a lot and hopefully keep the deer from from damaging them and keep them maybe out of our garden. So as we try to do on this program, whenever we're tackling a pest problem is we have to correctly identify the pest. What are the signs that it's deer that are eating your plants? You're absolutely right. There are other things that could be eating your plants, rodents, uh, rabbits, uh, and, and deer being among them. And so you need to have an idea of the what we call the signs of deer, the things that let us know the deer have been there. One is the way they eat. Um, deer don't leave tooth marks on trunks, let's say. You won't see a set of marks in the trunk. They they have to eat. They tear the leaves apart or shred them. They don't have upper incisors. I'm not real good on teeth, but those I think are cutting teeth. Deer lack upper incisors, so they can't just bite into something like biting into an apple. They have to grab onto the nice young stems and leaves and tear them off. So that's number one, the type of damage you see. The location of that damage. Deer are 
much taller than other things that might be eating our plants from the ground, like rabbits and rodents. So the damage could go up this, the plant to four to five feet, maybe even bigger if you've higher if you've got bigger deer around. Uh, then look down, look at the ground, look for their poop, the deer pellets. I'm sure you can find pictures on the internet, so I'm not going to describe them. They're black and round. They're black and round. Yeah. And shiny. Yeah. And in a pile usually. And then their hooves. They have two, I guess it's called a cloven hoof, two uh, indents in the ground. And the whole thing is kind of the shape of an avocado or an egg. Hmm. Uh, and that's the deer imprint in the ground. So you're going to look for those things. The, the, it's probably the size of uh, two pennies together placed end to end. The From the t- tip of each clove to the back, right? That's right. what you're saying? Yeah. 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 So, they're, you know, it's not that big. You would think with a deer that there might be a bigger footprint, but in reality, it, it's fairly compact. It is quite small, yes. So, okay, we've, we've figured out it's the deer, but we should point out, too, that male deer, especially in late summer, may be rubbing their antlers on tree trunks and limbs or fence posts. And usually if it's a mature tree, it's not that much of damage. But if they're rubbing those antlers on smaller trees or saplings, then there could be a lot of damage. Right. If there's not a lot of cork over the the live part of the plant, so cork is what we typically call bark, and the live part of the plant is just underneath that, and that's where all the liquids move around in the plant. If there's not a lot of protection over that, the wet part, it rips it right off and exposes the, the vascular system of the plant. So yeah, that's a very, they're, the deer are trying to take the velvet off of their antlers when they're doing that. I think for the sake of this discussion, we will limit the conversation about deer-proof plants simply because it isn't consistent from one area of the country to another. So let's talk about uh, exclusion or modification or a lot of interesting things you can buy at the nursery too to uh, maybe dissuade deer. Right. There are some very uh, some several categories that we can explore for protecting our garden. As you mentioned, exclusion, modifying the habitat, repellents and hazing or frightening them. And then in most places where there are deer, there is a hunting season as well. The most effective of all of those, but probably the most expensive of all of those controls is the fencing. And that was something that was explored heavily in the vineyards uh, in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. It's expensive to make a fence and put it up and it has to be minimum of six feet, eight feet is better and has to go all the way around the property, no holes in it. And deer will also, if they can, they'll go under the fence. So you have to be sure that that fence is attached to the ground somehow. If it's a rigid fence, that's fine. But it is less expensive and maybe easier to use. Some of the softer plastics uh, that are are woven uh, and rolled up and used as fencing around, let's say, construction sites, that might be a place you'd see them. They need to be six feet tall minimum, eight feet is better. And they need to be rigidly attached so that the deer can't get under them or uh, well, over is because of the height. They can't get over them. Yeah, or they have to be uh, rigidly supported, too, so they don't knock down the fence, too. So you're going to have to have your support posts much closer together than you would on a normal fence. Right, right. So that, that it's a pricey 
way to go. Uh, electric fences are a possibility too. And I read uh, many different cooperative extension sites about deer. And some of them, you could tell deer was a really big problem because they suggested turning on your electric fence and then getting a piece of aluminum foil, putting peanut butter on it and wrapping it around the live electric fence so that the deer would be attracted and they would get their zapping. That is an extreme, I think. And electric fences take real regular maintenance because a lot of things can cause that electricity to fail. Right. I think a good uh, point, too, that University of California Cooperative Extension makes about uh, if you are constructing a deer fence is not only are you trying to uh, keep them from getting in, you've got to give them an easy way to get out. Yes. And that's, yes. I would think, very important that if you spot a deer uh, in a fenced garden, then if you go to try to get them out, they may end up destroying the fence trying to get out. Right. And they're not going to come to you asking you to open the gate. No, they're not. <clears throat> so you need to have another place. Fences You need to fence the entire property and it needs to have a gate. The gate needs to be the same height as the fence. And you probably need a back door so that if you go in your gate and close it behind you, because the deer may come in when you're not looking uh, and see a deer, you can leave by that gate and go around. The gate is typically in a place or often in a place where humans hang out the deer is not likely to head toward that main gate. So have a back door, have a back gate where they can leave. Hmm. And I, I imagine too, on, on a slope, you would want that uh, escape gate on, on the high end. I, it probably depends on your property, but that sounds like a really good idea. There's lots of discussion and there was some practice of it in the foothills of using a slanted fence. Deer can jump high and they can jump far but they can't jump, do both at the same time. And so if you only have a six-foot fence, one technique is to slant it uh, away at about a 45-degree angle, away from the plant you're trying to protect at about a 45-degree angle. And that combination of uh, distance and height will uh, flummox the deer and keep them out. Hmm. Now, I've heard two of uh, experiments going on with even shorter fences of four and five-foot heights, but having that sloping a second sloping fence pointed outward as well sort of like forming a v if you will and as long as they can't get between the two fences and then jump uh, you might have success keeping them out with a lower fence by having the double fencing right right i also saw double fencing of ver vertical fences and a dog run between them so what how wide's a dog run three foot four foot uh and, mm -hmm. and and so the, the second fence inside didn't need to be as high. It just needed to contain the dog. And the deer don't like dogs. So dogs can be used as protection. But, of course, you need to take care of that dog then. That's not a free thing. You feed it, take it to the vet, groom it, all of those good things. Well, that brings up then the uh, thought of using repellents. And there are all sorts of chemical repellents that are sold for reducing or preventing deer damage. But uh, I, I think they're only good until it starts raining. Right. Repellents are a temporary solution. If you've got a crop that is just coming ripe and you realize a deer has found it and is starting to eat it, and you're only going to need this deer protection for a short period of time, then a repellent is a possibility. There are lots of recipes for making repellents. Uh, they need to either smell really bad, like fermented egg, or they need to cause a discomfort to the deer after they've been eaten. And that would be like hot pepper, the capsaicin in hot pepper. There are anecdotal repellents like hanging hair in the 
uh, crop or hanging um, using urine of of which you'd have to buy of a predator of the deer. Those are also suggested, but not tested. I'm just wondering how they collect urine from coyotes. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to know. Yeah, okay. I assume somebody, I assume it's manufactured, you know, that that, that, that somebody's analyzed what's in coyote urine and then put the same chemicals together. But that's my guess. Now, what about frightening devices, uh, noisy objects? Uh, You see advertised uh, a lot of motion-activated sprinklers. But again, I would think at some point they will just say, oh, it's raining and keep on eating. Yes, it, it it, yes, it doesn't. They're again short term. When you put them out initially, they will keep the deer away. Again, you could use them potentially for a, a crop that just has a few days to go before you're going to finish with it. Uh, but uh, and the one you're talking about raining, that would be a, a motion activated sprinkler. Uh, other hazing things would be noises, radios, uh, dog barking, setting off blanks on a some kind of a weapon, a gun kind of thing. But the deer will get used to them. So they're not very effective. One thing a friend of mine did in her home garden, and she lived uh, near in the Napa Sonoma area, was made a very narrow garden, only about five feet wide, and fenced just that area. And because it was so narrow, the deer could not jump into it. Does that make hmm. sense? Yeah. Okay. And so they, they, they're not willing to do a six foot leap into an area that they may not clear. Right. Right. So that but, kept them out. But does that work from the get go or do deer learn that after cousin Jim gets stuck at the top of the fence? <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that for sure, but I would discourage people from putting uh, anything harmful on the top of the fence. You don't want to kill the deer uh, they talk about wire fencing because it has some flexibility to it and it, it is easier to release a deer that gets caught in it or the deer to release themselves. Not not to use barbed wire because it's it, you're just creating the barrier. You're not trying to harm the deer in the process. I guess another solution for people who just want to protect certain valuable plants, and I'm thinking of fruit trees, would be to individually cage each of these fruit trees. And this goes back to something we've talked about a lot on this program, maintaining fruit trees at a height that are within your reach. In other words, keeping them at maybe six feet tall or so and six feet wide. And that way, you'll still have plenty of fruit for the family, but it'd be much easier to build an enclosure to protect that tree. Right. That's definitely an option. And also a young tree. We were talking about the male deer coming along and and rubbing their antlers on a a tree. And if it's a young tree with a narrow stem, then it's much more damaging to that than an older tree that has much more uh, much wider stem and much more cork on the outside of that wood. So just the, the trunk of the tree can be covered either with a very narrow fence. It's only a foot or two across and just prevents the deer from getting up close to it and rubbing their antlers against it. Or you can use something like a tree wrap, a plastic tree wrap or a tree shelter, something netting over the tree, something like that, that would keep the the deer away. It is not a permanent solution and it shouldn't be. Those kinds of, of things that are very small and close to the trunk need to be checked regularly so the plant itself is not damaged. So they're just uh, for starting up, for getting the orchard going, let's say, 
and then considering doing the fencing that you were talking about next. And if you're thinking of using some sort of noisemaker to frighten them off, I, I love this sentence in the uh, University of California information on uh, deer and their pests in the gardens and landscape series. And it, it says there about uh, if you're thinking of using noisemakers, well, in urban and suburban residential areas, deer come into contact with a variety of changing auditory and visual stimuli daily and often quickly habituate to things that cause them no harm. So, for instance, I was on my bicycle today and I happened to be going down Sunrise Boulevard, which is a very busy street here yes. in the Sacramento area. Four lanes of traffic, always traffic, lots of signals, lots of horns. And here's a family of deer just walking down the sidewalk of Sunrise Boulevard. <laughs> Holy he Headed for a residential complex where they had uh, spied uh, some tasty shrubs. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. I've seen them, but not in such uh, such busy <laughs> places. But they uh, they were on the side of the road and it was a family and uh, of many sizes. There were probably seven or so deer. And they actually stopped and waited for the car to go by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I noticed they, these the, these deer I saw today. Uh, they crossed with the light. So <laughs> 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 whatever i think they've done this before yeah they've gotten to know their environment so yeah this, this this noise stuff they call it hazing in one website i saw um yeah it, it doesn't work <laughs> yeah it, it's very temporary i i guess if you mix it up a bit that might help but again it will be short term so is there a solution maybe no maybe not no <laughs> not a not a and all be all solution. We can't eradicate the deer or the damage they're going to do, but we can share with them. And I didn't see anybody saying anything about that. If you have enough property, you can put something that they like to eat way out in the back 40 somewhere. And obviously they'll still come looking for what else you have, but that you would have to protect and exclusion is your best choice. Fencing. It's Exclusion is it. Dear, they they are among us, and uh, we will continue uh, to protect our backyard food supply. Yep. Debbie Flower, college horticulture professor, retired. Thank you so much for uh, telling us the truth about deer. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, Fred. You have a small yard and you think you don't have the room for fruit trees? Well, maybe you better think again. Because Dave Wilson Nursery wants to show you how to grow great-tasting fruits like peaches, apples, pluots, and nut trees. Plus, they have potted fruits such as blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, boysenberries, figs, grapes, hops, kiwi, olives, and pomegranates. These are all plants that you can grow in small areas. You can even grow many of them in containers on patios as well. It's called Backyard Orchard Culture. And you can get step-by-step -step information via the Dave Wilson YouTube videos. So where do you find those? Well, just go to DaveWilson.com, click on the Home Garden tab at the top of the page. Also in that Home Garden tab, you're going to find a link to their fruit and nut harvest chart. You can be picking delicious, healthy fruits from your own yard from May to December here in USDA Zone 9. And something else you're going to find in that Home Garden tab. You're going to find the closest nursery to you that carries Dave Wilson's quality fruit trees. And they're in nurseries from coast to coast. So start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. 
We are now in the season when burn piles, wood stoves, and fireplaces are seeing more activity. The flashback episode for this week covers a common question being heard during these cooler months. Is wood ash good for the garden soil? Our favorite college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower, answered that decisively way back in episode 144 with our favorite garden answer, It Depends. But she has tips to help you decide if your soil will benefit from the addition of wood ash. And back on episode 144 from October of 2021, we talked with organic gardening expert Steve Zion about how you can achieve better soil starting this time of year with a lot less work. His tips might even allow you to skip the tedious chore of crop rotation each year. Give it a listen. Again, it's episode 144, originally aired in October of 2021, entitled Using Wood Ash in Your Garden. Find a link to it in today's show notes or at the podcast player of your choice. And you can find it along with a transcript at our homepage, GardenBasics.net. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast comes out once a week on Fridays. And it's brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. The Garden Basics podcast is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes our homepage, GardenBasics.net, and that's where you can also find transcripts of most episodes as well. Thank you so much for listening or reading.